Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This week, I want to talk a little bit about dirt bikes and compliance failures. But first, as always, I want to encourage you to please, please subscribe to the podcast. Please do get in touch with us if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future iterations of the podcast. And also, please join us for an upcoming webinar that we're going to be doing in in uh, combination with the Clear Law Institute. Um, this will be an update of the Updating Your Code of Conduct Best Practices uh, webinar that I've done in the past with Clear Law. If you've never attended that, it's uh, approximately 75 minutes long. Uh, we go through soup to nuts, the process in planning and putting together the resources necessary to update your code of conduct. Um, and if you are planning in the new year, uh, to undergo or, or 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 start such a project, it might be a good time in January to uh, start thinking about that. On January the seventeenth at three p.m. Eastern, uh, that uh, webinar will be going on live. You can join in and ask questions. Uh, it also will be recorded for posterity. Um, you in the show notes, um, I will update uh, here in future weeks the. Um, uh, registration page. I don't believe it's up just yet. If it is, I'll put it in the show notes. Otherwise, just uh, look here uh, or look in the show notes in future iterations of the podcast to uh, sign up for that webinar on January the 17th. So as we start heading into the Christmas season, um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about um, has to do with a present that we got got for our son's last Christmas, which was a electric dirt bike. Um, there are uh, a few rules that we had um, allocated for the use of the dirt bike. Uh, number one rule being don't ride it in the street. Well, I think anybody who has uh, boys uh, between the ages of 7 and 12 knows that if you provide a dirt bike and um, uh, provide rules that include don't drive it in the street, uh, you are setting yourself up for major disappointment. Um, but it got me thinking uh, about uh, compliance failures generally. Um, certainly it, it doesn't take much of an imagination when you provide uh, a dirt bike to a uh, uh, seven-year-old boy uh, that uh, they're going to end up uh, violating uh, those rules that you've put in place for the dirt bike. Um, but by the same token, I think there are a lot of failures that happen uh, with a compliance program that uh, really ought to be anticipated. Um, and it doesn't need to come out of the blue. And there are some real practical things in three areas in particular that I wanted to focus on today uh, that I think can per help prepare uh, for that eventuality because they're going to drive the dirt bike in the street. It's going to happen. There are going to be failures uh, in any compliance program. Um, and the best you can do uh, is uh, try, your, try to avoid those failures whenever possible, but also be in a position to mitigate those failures and respond to those failures when they inevitably do happen. 
so the first rule here that I want to talk about is plan for failures. Plan for it to happen. Uh, there is no compliance program that is 100% perfect. Uh, even if you're in a smaller organization, uh, there are going to be situations where uh, people um, either intentionally or unintentionally violate the rules, uh, engage in misconduct, or otherwise uh, have a breach of some sort uh, that will require you to take some action. Um, so plan for that. Uh, and how do you plan for that? Well, one is uh, to take some serious time to think about what are the likely failure points in your compliance program? Where, where are the situations, what are the situations uh, where there might be a breach, might be a failure in the program, might be some misconduct? Um, so this is uh, you know, an important aspect of any program is to really take some time to think about uh, what, um, where, where the pain points might be, where the failure points might be. Um, I find that very often uh, places where this happens, in particular in conjunction with the compliance program, is when new initiatives are undertaken uh, by the compliance um, program or by the organization in the compliance arena. And uh, you know there hasn't been a lot of thoughtful, practical consideration about what that means. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. A perfect example of this. Uh, it comes from the anti-corruption realm, and this is something that I've seen happen multiple times in organizations over the last few years or, or where this issue has come up. Uh, if you go back, if you rewind 10 years ago uh, when FCPA, the, the anti-corruption law here in the United States, uh, was really all there was uh, with regards to enforcement or at least uh, apparent enforcement of, of uh, compliance issues, um, one of the main differences, uh, those of you who are steeped in anti-corruption know, between the FCPA and most other laws uh, internationally is the exception for uh, facilitating payments or grease payments, uh, pay de minimis payments that are made uh, to facilitate routine uh, governmental action. Uh, so paying uh, to facilitate getting uh, equipment through customs, uh, paying to facilitate to get uh, permits so that the job can continue on and, and your crews are not idled. Uh, that's, that sort of payment had an exception in, has an exception still in the FCPA, uh, but no such exception exists in the UK Bribery Act, for example, or Brazilian Clean Companies Act, or a lot of the other standards around the world. So what happened starting you know, six, five years ago, is a lot of organizations were re-examining their um, anti-corruption compliance programs, and they were taking a zero tolerance uh, position with regard to any kind of payments, including these facilitating payments, which are technically exempt under the FCPA. Just to make it clean, they were saying, look, uh, we may have had a different practice in the past, but now we are no longer going to allow this. Um, what happened as a, as a consequence of this for some organizations is they changed their policy, but they didn't really do their homework beforehand to determine what was happening in a practical sense down uh, at, at the operational level. How, how uh, prevalent were these uh, facilitating payments? And if you all of a sudden 
make them uh, no longer available to the staff that uh, were, were conducting operations, uh, what are they going to do in the alternative? Are they going to uh, still make these payments but no longer identify them as facilitating payments but somehow hide them in the books, which as we all know, again, if you're steeped in anti-corruption, is a books and records violation. Um, there were lots of potential problems that could crop up from this. And uh, many organizations, uh, you know, were wise to this and, and, and uh, took the time to explain what the change was, what it meant, and, uh, and, and thoughtfully went through uh, the practical operational considerations in making such a change and, and identified areas where uh, facilitation payments, for example, had been made in the past and what the go-forward position and alternatives would be. Uh, but some organizations did not. They just changed the policy, changed the training, uh, and expected everybody to conform their behavior without uh, making the inquiry. Well, that's something that you should plan for. Uh, if you're making a change like that, if you're going into a new industry, if uh, there have been uh, and there's been an acquisition and you have new people that come from a different organization and a different uh, set of rules and perhaps uh, values uh, or a different perspective on business. Uh, that have been brought into the fold. Well, um, those, all of those situations, all those changes are going to necessarily mean that you're going to have to take a hard look at where the rubber meets the road on all of your major compliance risks and ask, what are some of the likely areas where we might have a failure? What are some changes that we've made or some changes that have happened to the complexion of our business or our operation? Maybe you're under uh, pressure, financial pressure, performance pressure that, that you weren't uh, two years ago. Uh, how might that have changed how uh, managers and uh, operational people are behaving in the field uh, to try to meet certain goals. These things all have to be considered. So uh, once you identify those particular pain points, then the second piece of the puzzle is, well, how do we respond? Uh, taking the anti-corruption example, uh, I think if you are going to make a change, a significant change to how you approach an issue, uh, a compliance issue, and change your policy, well, you need to do your homework beforehand and find out, okay, how do these things actually work in the field? What are people actually doing? Okay, now that we know what they're actually doing, and uh, maybe some of the behaviors they're engaged in, we want them to no they we want them to no longer engage in those behaviors. Then you have to be very, very straightforward and upfront about that, and make sure that we understand what the alternatives are, and that they know what the alternatives are, and we can redirect that behavior in a way that's going to comply with the policy. So think about what the response is going to be very carefully uh, uh, once you identify those particular issues. A second area that I uh, think is important to think about when you're um, contemplating the inevitable potential um, failures that could be out there, the, the breaches, the uh, potential misconduct that could be happening, is to really uh, engage a broader part of the organization and ask, and ask the questions, ask what those risks are. Um, you know, oftentimes when we're planning for failures or planning or doing risk assessment or uh, somehow um, trying to get a handle on what, what, what risks we might face, it can be sometimes be a very insular um, exercise. It can, it can involve uh, the usual suspects, the, the, the audit department, the legal department, HR, security, uh, if there's a risk management um, 
component of the organization, obviously other executives, but it sometimes doesn't offer, uh, doesn't include or offer an opportunity for inclusion for the broader operational management of the organization. And that's really important it, it, to get their input. Um, if you go through that, the first part of the exercise I was just talking about where you have identified potential areas, um, then maybe what, you know, rather than uh, trying to um, uh, gather, uh, you know, a thousand disparate opinions, uh, you try to focus on, you know, the top 15 or 20 uh, potential um, failures or, or risk issues that you've uncovered and uh, put together a survey on those uh, issues and, and send that out, out to the kind of manager tranche of your organization, even if that is a few hundred or a thousand individuals, if you're a rather large organization and get their input about what's important. That'll help you rank those risks, figure out which potential uh, pieces uh, of the puzzle are going to be more problematic than others, uh, but involve that middle as much as possible. I, it's, I, again, I understand that it would be potentially ungangly and and very uh, and operationally difficult to, to include everybody at that earlier stage where you're uh, sort of uh, looking at the blue sky, uh, but as a second phase, once you've narrowed down uh, the potential issues that you're most concerned about, um, getting input on those. You know what, which which one of these you know 15 or so issues is really uh, you know what are the top five here? What what what's the consensus among the people that are uh, conducting our business on a on a daily day in day out basis uh, at an operational level? What do they think? Uh, is most important. And that's where you can get to those those sorts of uh, uh, bread and butter issues and understand uh, where the real risk might be. Um, and then uh, just as the second part uh, of, of identifying it uh, at a high level is to, to start thinking about the response, um, though the information, the feedback you get back uh, with a broader uh, inquiry to the larger group of managers in the organization is also going to uh, presumably present uh, some possible ways for you to approach um, uh, planning for and resolving uh, any potential issues and, and, and uh, uh, trying to mitigate that behavior. And then the third thing that I would say is most important about this is have a plan in place for engaging outside help. Uh, and this is really uh, two-pronged. The first prong is the more preventative use of outside help, um, and that is uh, bringing in outside help to, to determine uh, what your risk profile is, uh, what are potential failure points, what are some potential ways to address those failure points, bringing in uh, somebody to help uh, put together, assess the program, assess uh, potential weaknesses, and help uh, uh, with that first part of the process. That's important. That can be really helpful, particularly if you don't have the resources to do all that yourself, to bring in a third party to help you there. Um, but but also it brings in a fresh perspective. Uh, it avoids the potential for tunnel vision or, or to miss uh, certain aspects of your program. And it also brings in uh, the ability of an outsider to help you benchmark uh, and, uh, and, and they bring in experiences from other organizations and what they're doing around uh, looking at their risks and appropriately addressing them. So that's the first way you can bring in a third party. And, the, and then the other uh, thing that I would say is have a plan in place 
uh, for uh, bringing in third parties, bringing in uh, an outside counsel or, or some other um, resources that you might need in, in the case of a failure, in the case of misconduct or a breach. Uh, don't wait until something happens uh, to identify who you might want to uh, bring in and, and, and uh, help with a potential um, uh, internal investigation, for example. Um, as many of you know, I, I think I've talked about it probably not too extensively, but to some extent in this podcast in the past, uh, that's where I started in my career is as a uh, white-collar defense lawyer um, and a big part of the practice that um, uh, I was engaged in through the first part of my career was working with organizations uh, when bad things had happened. Um, just as uh, you know, any any crisis, uh, your the the time um, and the ability to make a, a decision in a in a contemplative way is really compressed, and uh, it's always better if you have uh, done some of your window shopping beforehand. Um, uh, most uh, uh, lawyers that engage in invest in an investigation practice, most law firms. Um, and those that uh, will help with investigations, uh, other professionals, um, are be happy to talk to you, uh, even when there's not an ongoing crisis and 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 the house is burning down. Um, having those conversations and finding uh, people that you would be comfortable working with beforehand uh, is a smart thing to do. Um, many organizations these days have uh, protocols in place. Uh, and plans in place for, for instance, on very specific issues like a, a data breach. Uh, but that's that's something that you see more and more of, where organizations have a really well-defined plan about who does what, uh, who's going to be in charge of communications, and even uh, what what uh, uh, third parties are we going to bring in to help us uh, if we find out that we have a massive uh, data breach uh, and how to respond to that. Um, I don't think it's any different uh, for um, uh, a general um, uh, compliance failure or misconduct issue. Um, you know, uh, perhaps it might be true that uh, you're going to have to find a particular expertise that's specific to whatever the issue might be, whether that's anti-corruption or uh, sexual harassment issue or um, who knows what, uh, uh, privacy and, and data security. Uh, but if you find uh, an advisor and an attorney that you have um, uh, that you that you feel really embodies the ethos that that matter to you when it comes to conducting an, an investigation and and really trying to def better define an issue, um, I think it's worthwhile to establish that relationship beforehand. Um, and it might be that you never call on them, and it might be that uh, you call on them only to help you identify a more appropriate uh, a specialist that has knowledge in the area where you have a problem, but it's always good to have that sort of advice ready to hand. Um, I think oftentimes organizations end up uh, uh, calling on um, uh, firms that they already have relationships with, perhaps their employment counsel or or some other organ, some other um, law firm that they that they uh, regularly engage for their for their ongoing business, and that might be great, and you might be really comfortable with their advice and 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 be uh, comfortable with who they would refer you to. But I but run the traps, start thinking about it now, 
uh, if we, if you were tomorrow to find out that there uh, are allegations against a senior official in the organization that they've been harassing somebody inside the organization, um, who would you get in touch with besides um, the general counsel? Um, who, who, who's uh, on speed dial for the general counsel? And do we know um, uh, how how they would be brought in and what the circumstances would be? And are you comfortable that that? Uh, that those relationships are, are the relationships and, and the advice that you'd want in, in a crisis situation. It's worth thinking about. So in uh, to kind of go back and, and talk about uh, these three things again, I think first and foremost is plan. Um, think about what uh, uh, potential issues are out there, the risks that are top of mind and, and how those might in practical terms play out potentially in the organization if you had a failure or, or, or misconduct. Uh, how would you respond to that? Um, think really uh, long and hard about uh, involving uh, operational management, uh, management throughout the organization, getting their impression and kind of honing in on those uh, risk issues that are most important and how you respond to them. And then lastly, think a little bit uh, about uh, bringing in third-party assistance to help you with those, those first two parts, but also um, uh, having uh, ready at hand uh, some sage advice should a breach happen, should a failure happen, should misconduct happen, uh, who you're going to call uh, and have that in mind. I think that's important too. So I hope that's helpful in kind of thinking about failures, um, uh, thinking about potential misconduct that could happen in an organization, uh, and how you sort of pre-plan uh, for the inevitable, um, and uh, have uh, ready to hand uh, a process and a plan and and a go-to set of, uh, of of strategies that you're going to go to and um, resources you're going to go to when you need to. So until next time, thanks very much. Uh, as always, please do get in touch if you have questions, comments, or suggestions. You can reach us at uh, compliancebeat.com, moreheadconsulting.com, or you can email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Morehead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moreheadconsulting.com. 